I'm sitting here in the golf.com golf magazine offices with Paul Stringer, who's uh, the executive vice president at Nicholas Design. He, he wears different hats, but essentially, Paul, you're in charge of design for Nicholas Company. That's correct. And how did you get here? How, how, how does one get to this point in life? You've got this golf background, got obviously tremendous experience in international course design, but where does that start? Where are you from originally? How did you get into golf? Well, it's, it's an interesting process. I, like many kids, grew up playing golf and uh, living in the Northwest. I'm from the Seattle area originally and uh, went on to play college golf uh, up in the Northwest. And uh, from there, um, I got the golf bug. And even though I, I taught school and, and coached for a little while, I still missed the golf business. So uh, once I got married, my wife and I moved down to Arizona where obviously they were developing and building a lot of golf courses and got in the golf business and became a PGA pro and worked at a golf facility for a while. And uh, shortly thereafter, uh, I joined a company called Troon Golf, which was started by Dana Garmany. And Troon Golf was based in Scottsdale managing golf courses, which had not been done at that level before. So I joined Dana when they had five golf courses and was an executive with their company, growing the business, adding management contracts all over the country. And then uh, it was probably uh, six or seven years into that company, I got a call from a representative at Nicholas that said they were looking to grow Nicholas Design a little more internationally and would I have an interest in talking to them. So I met out at Pebble Beach with a gentleman that uh, was in charge of design at the time. And uh, we had a good meeting, and uh, they offered me the position to come to South Florida doing uh, business development for them internationally. So what year was this, then, that you officially joined on with Nicholas? I joined them in 2003 and uh, immediately started working on, on facilities outside the U.S., as well as some domestic. But uh, the first real big one was the one we did at Jack Nicholas Golf Club Korea in Songdo, Korea, where... We eventually got the President's Cup in 2015, but uh, I can remember going to that site when half of it was underwater, and uh, it was the Incheon Bay, and that was very significant in the Korean War, uh, because that's where our troops landed, and uh, we filled in the site and created this Jack Nicholas Golf Club, and uh, the rest is history. So that was the first real big one that I had a impression on with the company and from there it's just kind of grown over time yeah i mean so you come in in 03 things were probably going gangbusters at that point that was you know in some ways right around the peak of of golf course construction of people wanting new golf courses built uh with their you know real estate developments or, or with different facilities that were going up did, did it feel like it at the time like this was you know a real boom time it, it did. Uh, we were just finished with the uh, Japanese development. We did 26 courses in Japan, and uh, Japan was a very big market for us. And so I just missed that wave. But the next wave was a lot of international things as well as domestic was still going pretty well because it was being driven by the economy and by the housing market. And so uh, a couple of places that, that grew in, in the development of golf was Russia. And I can remember going into Russia and we did a few deals there of uh, Jack Nicholas signature golf courses and 
you'd never think of that in Russia at the time, but uh, that's where we were growing, and uh, certainly other places in Europe and Asia, and China was just getting started into to major development. So I started spending more and more time in Asia and Southeast Asia. Yeah, and so, so what's that like? I mean, first of all, just to compare, uh, you know, doing a golf course deal in Russia versus the U.S. or in Russia versus Japan versus the U.S., there must be just cultural differences that exist and, and differences in the way business gets done. Oh, exactly. And the cultural differences and just the fact that even doing the contract, they don't have terms that are fairways or greens. or So you had to explain in the contract that it was the landing area. Well, that could mean for an airplane, not necessarily for a golf ball yeah. to land on. So terminology was different, and, and uh, just the process and the time element was different. In Russia, you've got a six-month season, so it took four years to develop a golf course instead of the U.S., where it would normally take two years. And you'd have to train personnel and find a, a contractor that could do the work. So you'd have your challenges, both uh, language barriers and cultural barriers, as well as seasonal barriers. So. Every place was different, but uh, you know you grow a lot and learn a lot through developing in each one of these cultures. Yeah, because in this in this case or some of these cases, you're going into places that not only do they want a new golf course, they don't necessarily have golf embedded as a part of their local culture, at least. That's right. And in Russia, for example, the the big thing for having a golf course, it was a status symbol for one, and number two, it was a gathering point for members to eat and drink and entertain. And so that's how they looked at it. And oh, by the way, we have a golf course. So, you know, and that kind of led to developing more and more residential or resort around those golf courses. But their first thought was more of a focal point for a community or for uh, a restaurant or activities for some of the affluent. And so that's how that all started. Yeah, and that, that maybe was especially a time where that was in vogue in the U.S. also, right? This idea of, you know, a uh, golf course as an amenity, as something that goes along with a, uh, a development. And obviously things changed um, a few years later. So that must have been a tricky time to be in the whole business. It was. Uh, golf courses were developed for a lot of different reasons. And at first in the U.S., uh, it started with the private golf course model like you have up around New York and Philadelphia, where you had a lot of private golf courses, which were standalone golf courses and hosted very, very prestigious tournaments. Then it grew to having more resorts and then finally residential developments centered around a, a golf course. And uh, in the case of something like Desert Mountain out in Scottsdale, Arizona, we did six golf courses around a residential development, which was unheard of in the day. But it, it was because of the economy and, and the residential uh, market being driven to have golf as a major amenity. So then how did things change? 2008, 2009, in general, if you look at the industry, golf course construction, in the U.S. at least, grinds to a halt. Where do you guys go in terms of, of business plan at that point? Well, it's a good question. And what happened in the U.S. is obviously golf courses weren't being developed as much. Some were actually being taken away. Uh, some of them that had bad business plans or in the wrong location at the wrong time didn't succeed. So we went from, say, 16,000 golf courses down to 14,000. So there was this natural attrition of golf courses domestically. However, because there were so many golf courses done in the U.S., there was the need to do renovation. 
And so we got involved with more and more renovation of not only our courses, but also other courses that people needed work and even to reinvent themselves as a club again and attract new members. And uh, in the meantime, places like China and Vietnam took off. And so we were doing a lot of things in those countries that were brand new builds. So we had this combination of new courses coming online as well as renovating existing golf courses. So it was a good model. Interesting. So you guys were able to uh, to adapt. And so you, would you say that then new course construction, from your perspective, has, has taken off more internationally in the last, say, 10 years than, uh, than probably in the U.S.? Definitely, definitely, yeah. Places like China, I mentioned Vietnam, uh, Cambodia doing a few things, South Africa, we had great success. So there are areas internationally that really grew as a result of the domestic market being down and we were proactive enough to have representatives in these different countries that could tell us and help us develop uh, golf courses in these countries. So we had good intel and and the business just grew internationally while we were still doing some uh, renovation of existing golf courses. And tell me about Vietnam in particular because I know we've we've run a couple stories recently in the magazine because there are developers that have had a lot of success recently there's this total boom happening in Vietnam what are the conditions that allow that to be possible well Vietnam is very interesting it's it's relatively small country but it's grown a lot it's a very young country Um, 70% of their population is under 40 years old and uh, they really embrace golf and the particular developer that we're working with Madame Na who is uh, a client that we have an agreement with to do more and more golf courses. Uh, I think we just signed our eighth golf course with Madame Na in, in Vietnam. But you have a long coastline, and so a lot of the golf courses are being developed along the coast, but then a lot around city centers like Hanoi. And she's based in Hanoi, so we've done some golf courses in and around Hanoi. And uh, the population continues to grow. They really endorse and support golf. And golf is being done right now as more of an amenity, but they're also doing it around residential and in Da Nang around resorts and beachfront communities. And you'll see more and more of that develop. Uh, I would say the next three to five years, Vietnam will continue to have a very strong growth of the game of golf and golf courses. Um, their uh, president and premier, had they had put out an initiative to do 100 golf courses in the next five years, and I think we're halfway through that. But uh, you're seeing more and more people getting involved with design and development of golf courses in Vietnam. I'm interested to, to ask you about the, the Nicholas aesthetic um, and what it means to be a Nicholas course. Obviously, there are Nicholas courses in all regions, uh, landscapes, you know, climates. But what are some defining features of a Jack Nicholas design? Well, I think the the biggest feature, and it's not really a feature, I, I would say, is the quality of the golf course that's done in terms of the design, the the uh, shot-making uh, skills that you need to have. Um, we vary the golf holes so that you don't have all the holes going in one direction. They, they might run north, south, east, west, and uh, we pay attention to the topography of the land and make sure that we design a golf course that fits the site the best that we can. And we work with the developer and trying to find out what they want on the site. Do they want this golf course for a tournament? Do they want it for the average person to play? Do they want a membership base that 
is a, a, a golf course that everybody can play from any age group and any ability and uh, have fun and come back and enjoy it. Um, hopefully they can. But I think you'll see in our courses, we don't have a particular pattern where the bunkers all look the same or the greens are all elevated or they're all built the same way. We change a lot of that in terms of what the topography is and what the landscape is and what the developer w developer's wishes are. Have you seen a shift in terms of uh, just trends and, and the looks of golf courses? There is probably a different answer. I know domestically there's been a bit of a push towards this uh, kind of minimalistic look and, and feel. Have you guys felt that in the U.S. versus abroad? I think you're right. I think it is more of a minimalistic and more of a natural feature um, where some courses were really manufactured or created where people brought in a lot of material and created something that was very artificial looking I think more and more designers of today are trying to do something that really ties into the natural landscape and that's always been our model uh, ever since we've been designing golf courses to work with the landscape that's already there and not make it look artificial um, so yeah, that, that's definitely a trend. And again, it comes back to the topography you're given and the conditions you're giving and um, not creating something that really looks unnatural, but that can last the test of time. I think the, the big credit that people tell us after we do a golf course is they say, hey, this golf course looks like it's been here for a long time, even though it's brand new. When you think about projects you've been involved with or just, you know, Nicholas properties that you visit to, to kind of check in on, you've said that you know, some years you've been on the road over 200 days, and are there places that really feel like home that you really feel a sense of pride uh, being at? Talk about your a few of your favorite properties. Well, that's interesting because they're all kind of my favorite, and they all have different stories behind them. But uh, I can tell you that uh, I just had lunch with some people, and I told them about experience in Beijing when I first started going to Beijing in the mid 90s, and. Uh, I think there were at the time more bicycles on the road than cars and they didn't have the modern airports and they didn't have the expat hotels and it, it was the wild wild west and so I've been in many of those circumstances where you're pioneering and you're going in there not knowing the language or who to talk to and creating the opportunity and then finally something like uh, Songdo happens where we did the Jack Nicklaus Golf Club Korea and you bring a President's Cup to that site which when I first went to that site, half of it was underwater, and we thought, this will never happen. But we had the vision as well as the uh, developer and uh, created something very special for the people to enjoy there as well as to bring a tournament to that, to that region. So that's been one of the more probably favorable projects I've worked on. And then obviously our influence in Vietnam and bringing golf into countries like Turkmenistan and, and uh, Russia where people would never expect to have golf courses how many golf courses do you guys have in russia this is me this is a gotcha question but roughly how many golf courses we only do you guys did have uh, we only did four golf courses in in uh, russia but uh uh you know we've got over 425 worldwide and uh 250 domestic golf courses so it keeps us busy and uh we're going to continue to grow in the southeast asia region and i think in saudi arabia is the next new market and, uh, you know, we'll continue to do renovations in a lot of different regions. How about the, the difficulties of building golf courses in the Middle East? I mean, obviously, there's, there's political difficulties. There's also climate difficulties, just in terms of 
grass that doesn't need a, a ton of water or that can take on climates that have salt or, or salt water? What are some of the challenges involved there? Well, I've said to a lot of people, water is the new gold because water is, is getting more and more difficult to have, uh, especially fresh water. Um, but in some of these countries, they're doing more and more with desalinization plants, reverse osmosis, so you can get water and then they're coming up with different strands of turf where it's more salt tolerant and can handle more salty uh, soils and, and more salty uh, water. And so we're finding a way to make those work. But there are challenges, especially in those regions where, you know, they want to create something very, very special. But I equate it to something like what we've done out in the desert in the U.S., where in Arizona you see these beautiful golf courses mixed into the desert. And uh, certainly you don't do as much in terms of turf acres because you're going to have to have more desert landscape. But you, you have good turf in areas where people will play, play the golf hole from and the rest becomes more native. What's the most exciting part of your job? Would you say it's, you know, landing the, the deal or seeing a site for the first time? Or is it, you know, once things start to, to take shape on a course that's going to be developed? What is, is there a moment that, you know, gets you the most fired up? I think it's all of the above, to be honest with you. I think it's something where once you get the deal signed, there's a big awe that comes out. Like, finally, we've we've made it we've got the deal done it's taken a lot of time to negotiate a deal and to get us involved but then once the golf course starts and they break ground and everybody's excited about it that's also exciting but then when you have the grand opening you know that something that was just a vision or a plan has actually come to fruition that's something you have a lot of pride in and so every time you come back to that site and you see how it's matured and and how people have taken pride in the golf course it gives you a great deal of satisfaction and how do you possibly keep track of all these courses? And how do you, you know, delegate responsibilities to enough good people to, to keep your eye on over 400 courses worldwide? Well, that, it is a challenge, and we have a great team, uh, both in, in Florida and uh, throughout the world, that, that helps us with that. And uh, it, it takes a lot of people. It's a very, very labor-intensive job. And, uh, you know, we have a lot of people out there that do a nice job supporting us, uh, both on the ownership side and the representative side and then our home office. So um, we delegate a lot of that responsibility and our team in Florida does a terrific job in staying in touch with the owners. And uh, like any business, we have our challenges, but uh, they're good challenges and uh, they're ones where we try to stay in touch. And now through all the uh, social media and, and uh, the internet, it's easy to contact them. It's easy for them to contact us, and so we stay plugged in. And, and just in general, um, in the U.S. And, and abroad, I mean, you sound optimistic about the state of the game and about your guys' prospects in the game and, and the health of golf courses uh, worldwide. Yeah, I, I am. I'm very positive and uh, optimistic about the game, and especially when you see something like the Masters that just happened and Tiger winning the Masters. I think that was a, a good shot of energy to the to the golf business and in the golf world in general. But you see all these young guys and gals coming up. Uh, we were just talking about uh, some Korean golfers and the Korean LPGA members on the on the uh, LPGA tour and how successful they've been and it's good to see that people are coming from a lot of different cultures and environments now and playing on the tour. And I think people can see that it's, it's a global sport now and, and that's exciting. And, uh, 
I think the more initiatives we have for uh, junior golf and, and even things like the top golfs of the world where it's an entertainment and people start doing that just to get some awareness to the game plays a lot of dividends to what we're trying to do and get them to come to the golf course. And I think rather than the old model where they'd come to the club and spend most of their day at the club, people are wanting to play the golf course fairly quickly, move on. They've got family duties and, and uh, trying to do other things. So, you know, the time commitment is, is a big challenge. And so there's some initiatives to have six hole loops, to have 12 hole loops, to have nine holes, par threes. We're, we're working with all those and to, and to speed up the game a little bit and also make it easier for the people that are just starting to play the game. Yeah, I know Jack has been at the forefront of thinking of alternative ways to to cut down on time or have these six or 12 hole loops. Uh, what is it like working with Jack himself? What, is, what has been his uh, influence, his ethos over the years um, in terms of designing courses? Well, I think the big thing that people would tell you is that Jack really understands the game. And from a player's perspective to the design, there's some players that play the game that aren't necessarily good designers. And you have designers that don't necessarily play the game. And Jack does both very, very well. And he looks at the golf course as a, a natural feature and how to best route the, the golf course on that particular property and then put in shot values. And he's taught all our guys that are designers how to really design and how to take advantage of the land and to make it a fun experience. And like he says, people always ask him, what's your favorite hole on this course, Jack? And Jack says, all 18. I don't have a favorite hole. So every hole, he takes the time and effort to make that the best hole it can be on that golf course. And that's also how our designers think. Do you guys look uh, elsewhere, look at, at what other companies are doing, other architects are doing to kind of compare, see what you like, see what you don't like, and, and are there specific people that have had an influence? I think if you look at golf courses worldwide, and all of us that play the game have played some really good golf courses, and they're not obviously all Nicholas courses, so we understand and respect what a particular designer did on that particular property. And, you know, if you look back in time, uh, people like Alistair McKenzie, that was a, a real pioneer in the game in terms of design and what he's done. And you look at a, a course and the model of how something like Augusta developed over time where, you know, there weren't that many trees on it and then it became very treed. And even now they tweak it continually to make it better and better. And uh, they adapt the golf course to the way the ball is and the game has changed. The ball's going further, the equipment's better, and people are hitting it further and they're stronger. And so they're adapting the golf course to that. And so I think it, it just depends on the course you play, but uh, we respect all the different designers and I, we, we enjoy playing other designers' golf course. And do any stories come to mind of, of seeing Jack in action on, uh, on a course in the design process, um, you know, of him being surprised or him having a, a strong feeling or, or a passion for, for a certain part of a design? Well, I can remember when we were walking the site doing a site visit in uh, Spain and our designer was with Jack as well as some of our team and there was a tree that was up by the green in the distance and he was asking different people what they thought about the tree being close to the green just to get their opinions he knew what he was thinking but he wanted to get their opinions and so he looked at me and he said Paul what do you think so I said Jack I personally keep the tree I think it adds a lot of character and he looked at me and goes I agree and so and then I've also had the, the ab absolute opposite of that where 
we've been on site visits and somebody said something and I answered a, uh, a question and Jack looked at me and he said, who's the designer here? And <laughs> so that, that was my message that I wasn't the designer that he was, but he's got a great eye for it. He knows that my area is business development and that's where I stay. But uh, it, he's been a, a great role model in terms of his desire and his vision for doing good golf courses and really working with the owner or the developer to uh, achieve their goals. And our guys all follow that uh, that discipline. It's one of the most iconic Nicholas designs, I guess. He's made it uh, a home for him. It's become, you know, almost a home for for Tiger Woods the way he has played there. Um, and it's connected Jack to, I guess, to the modern PGA Tour game across the years, right? Even to Bryson DeChambeau winning there last year. Um, so, what That's does right. a place like Muirfield mean to to Jack and to Nicholas? I think it means a lot to all of us, uh, especially Jack and, and uh, Jack's family, because Jack obviously created Muirfield Village, and it really became the first stadium course. They talk about stadium courses, and you know the first one that really gets talked about is the stadium course out in Scottsdale, the TPC of Scottsdale, which now has the waste management, was referred to as one of the first stadium golf courses. But I call the first stadium course really Muirfield Village because Jack wanted to have the 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 golf down below and the viewing for the spectators up above so if you look at Muirfield Village it's a great platform for people to watch golf and it's very very interesting for people to get around and to have great views and to be able to see a lot of different holes and uh, the thing that's really interesting about Muirfield Village is Jack has continued over the years to improve it so he's never completely satisfied he's always looking at ways to improve it whether he's enhancing the pond on 16 or making a, a green decision or lengthening the hole like he did on 17 because they were hitting it too far or 18 adding the bunkers down the right side of the fairway so that they couldn't carry the ball as far so he's constantly adapting the golf course to how the game is changing and you can remember a few years ago when uh, I think the top a uh, golfer was averaging 286 off the tee, and now it's 310 or 312 or whatever the number is. It keeps going up, and so the golf course gets longer and longer to adapt to the the players that are coming out. But one of my favorite stories was when K.J. Choi won the the uh, Memorial, and K.J. Choi came off the green. And many people understand K.J. Choi used to be a uh, a weightlifter. And he got into the game of golf, and he told Jack when he was getting his uh, handshake, when Jack shook his hand for winning the tournament, Jack, the first golf book I ever read was your book, Golf My Way. That's how I learned to play the game of golf, and look at me today. So it's amazing what Jack has seen over the time since the tournament started in the mid-'80s. Excuse me, mid-'70s. 18 is that way. I mean, you've got gallery all down the right side of the fairway, all the way up to the green, and the green kind of sits in a horseshoe, uh, up above you can put gallery as well as into the clubhouse so it's got views from all around it which is great and uh, Jack is always there with his wife Barbara and his son Jackie and Jack too is uh, is running the tournament now and uh, uh, so they've got a real family affair at Muirfield Village and all the members that support it in the local uh, charity and nationwide that is a big sponsor there and um, obviously with the charity of the Nicholas Children's Hospital uh, is a is a big uh, thing for the Nicholas family as well. And you can see that it means something to the players also when they come off. And, you know, that's part of winning the 
obviously there's money there's money at all these events and there's there's plenty of money involved with winning the memorial but that's part of it right is you get to shake the hand of, of one of the all-time greats absolutely i mean there's a lot of respect for all the players for jack and vice versa jack really respects what they do as well because he knows how hard it is to win a tournament and it's kind of like with our arnold palmer at bay hill uh everybody played in that tournament out of respect to arnold and uh so yeah and one of the things that was funny is jack introduced many years ago he introduced milkshakes at Muirfield village and the guys in the locker room would talk about the milkshakes that was the talking point it's like you're talking to a little kid that had just had a milkshake from McDonald's, but they had this special milkshake at Muirfield Village, and the guys all talked about it. And so that was a big drawing point for a lot of the guys. But you're right, they, they play the golf course because, A, it's a very, very good golf course, and, B, because of Jack and the tradition and the respect that they have for him. Making me thirsty. I was there all last uh, last year. Was my first time there. I was there all week, but I never got a, one of those milkshakes. So. We got to sneak one into you from the locker room. That's right. I'm gonna make my way in there this year. Paul, thanks a lot for uh, for coming on for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you.